I'm Zach Sarant. I am a member at MCC, and I've been a Christian since I was 16 years old. It was probably 10 years after being a Christian that I started to doubt, and I started to ask those hard questions that, um, you know, when you're younger, you're told not really to ask, and just because it's uncomfortable, or people might not know the answer to. I started to do my, my own thinking, and I started to, well, what I would call my own thinking, and I started to uh, doubt things because it just didn't make sense in the framework that was given to me. Um, you know, it, it was like when I, when I tried to understand who Jesus was compared to the picture that was painted for me from, you know, a teenager onto adulthood, it didn't, it didn't coincide. So that crisis became the, my own reality. That crisis became my own truth. Uh, the crisis became, do I actually believe in any of this based on what I was told to believe? So I, I kind of hit that rock bottom moment, if you want to call it that, um, when I just finally almost verbalized it, like, I don't know if I believe in God. Finally, in an absolute state of just I've got nothing left. I'm totally exhausted mentally, physically, spiritually. God, like if you're there, man, like if you're there, please just just show somebody cares. What I started to notice was this new desire that same day that I'm like, you know what, I'm just gonna go to church. Uh, we all packed up and came to MCC and it was, it was like I never left and when I came back, it was like people were like, hey man, how are you doing? And stuff like that. But it was like the specific thing was more along the lines of what happened during the service. You know, Mike wasn't speaking that day. Uh, actually, Jason was speaking and he was sharing his testimony. I, uh, I'm sitting in that sermon and it wasn't anything necessarily that he said as much as the comfort that I believed I can communicate with you. But the, the next thing that was kind of strange was whenever I was picking up my kids and uh, Adam just kind of like stops by and you know he's like hey man how you doing and it's been so long since somebody has just asked me how I'm doing and it actually felt like they meant it that it, it affected me a lot it's like that moment whenever you you have this answer in front of you and you know that it's the right answer and you know what you're asking for has been given to you, but you still want to deny it. And that's how I felt in that moment. But it was like, it was like being slapped in the face with just Jesus saying, listen, you asked for this and there it is. Like, I'm giving it to you now. And sure enough, it was like, that's all it took for me was just having that genuine care. And that's what I got. And then the rest was kind of like just history from there. Sometimes on a Sunday morning, the most profound experience that somebody will have with God is you saying to them, hey, how are you? How are you doing? And genuinely caring because God draws people into community. He draws people into uh, or out of isolation. And so don't ever discredit how important it is to smile and say hello or to just say, how are things going? and really care because in this place, in this place, we can really 
get to know each other and be real with one another and understand struggle and doubt. And in this season when life is so busy, oftentimes we push those things into the corner and we just hold on to them for later. But now, right now, we need to lean into those things and seek clarity. And for Zach, the most profound experience wasn't some moment when the music was big in worship. It wasn't some poignant phrase and a message. It was someone walking up to him and saying, hey, is everything okay? He said yes to turning to God in his doubt. And God put a community of people around him to help him walk through that. So don't doubt how important your hello is. Your how are you is. It matters a lot. <clears throat> I love this time of, of year um, because of all the traditions. In spite of the craziness, in spite of the busyness, I love the traditions uh, of this year because they point to something big happening. They point to the fact that God works in our doubts and he works outside of our perception of what he's doing. This whole season of Advent should give us comfort in our doubts, should give us comfort in our times and in our questions. Because for 400 years, something was happening, but people couldn't see. And these traditions that we have at Christmas, like waiting for Christmas presents to open them on Christmas Day, they all serve to point to this idea that there's something good coming just on the horizon. We can hold on to hope. But a lot of times the traditions get the, the attention and the, the point that they're trying to make don't. I remember um, loving Christmas as a kid. I had kind of a love-hate relationship with Christmas because I loved presents, but I hated waiting for them. I was a very deep and philosophical child. Uh, but I, I like looked forward to that so much. Cri school, not important for me in December. It just wasn't presents were important for me in December. And every year, we would go to my aunt and uncle's house for Christmas Eve, and we'd get some presents there, and that was a ton of fun because all the cousins were together, and we were playing, and we got to open presents and stuff. But then I knew that we would go home, and there would be not very much in the living room, and I knew that when I woke up the next day, the living room would be full. And I could expect that, but I still had to wait for that. And as a kid, waiting was no bueno. I did not like that. That was no good for non-Spanish speakers in the room. I don't know. Uh, but one particular Christmas, I, uh, I noticed when we got home from Christmas Eve that the living room was uh, not so full. And so I had some expectations on how good or bad Christmas was going to be the next morning based on how many presents my mom and dad had set out that, that they got us the, you know, before. And I was like, oh, the present to like goodness ratio is not quite right. Like I said, deep, deep things going on up here for me as a child. And so I tried to go to bed because Christmas Eve is like when waiting is the hardest. And so I've never been good at going to sleep at night. And so Christmas Eve is especially difficult because Santa, you know? Um, and so I was laying in bed just waiting, just like, and it felt like hours upon hours upon hours. And then finally, I fell asleep, and then morning came, and I was the first one up, always, uh, because I was the youngest, 
and I was the only boy. I had two older sisters. And so when I was in elementary school and they were in middle and high school, they loved being woken up at like 5.15 in the morning because it's Christmas morning. They thought I was the best brother in the world. But anyway, I woke up and I knew it was Christmas morning. I knew it was finally what I would consider late enough to get up for Christmas morning. I don't know if you have any people like this in your household. Like it's actually, you have to wait a long time to go out and get presents. And so I knew like, okay, five, we were probably good. Santa's done doing what he's going to do and I can go out there now. And so uh, I went out and I went around the corner and then I saw Christmas. More specifically, I saw three bikes and I went nuts. I started waking everybody up in the house. It's like, it's Christmas. Christmas is here. It's a, you got to get up. You got to come out here and look. And I was on that bike for the rest of the day in the middle of winter because it was incredible. It had lights and it made sounds and it was my favorite bike in the whole world. I wish that you guys could have had that bike too because it was incredible. But I had, I had to wait for that moment. And that waiting was supposed to point me to the fact that we have to wait sometimes on God. That we have to wait on what he's going to do and his promise being fulfilled in our lives. And the truth of this season is that waiting is difficult. But the truth that we're going to look in on today, the truth of Advent, is that our waiting is God's working. Our waiting is God's working. And the thing that I've constantly misunderstood about that is that I thought that our waiting was also God's waiting. And I would say things like, what's God waiting on? I wish he would just blank. What is he waiting on? But he's not waiting. He's just operating outside of what we can see. Our waiting is God's working. God doesn't need to rest. He's up to something. He's doing something. And though we can't see what he's doing, he is still doing something because he is for us as we'll see today. And he just wants us to pursue him a little bit more. We don't get to see everything. In fact, we couldn't understand everything even if we could see what God is doing. He operates outside of our perception. Isaiah 40, 28 and 29 says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. In his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Do you not know? Have you not heard? He's not tired. He's not giving up. He doesn't need a rest. He's not waiting. He's doing something. He's trying to reconcile humanity back to himself. He is up to something. We're the ones who are tired. We're the ones who need to wait. We're the ones who need to rest. Last week, Cohen was very sick. Fever, coughing, no energy, the whole thing. Like, he was sick. And three-year-old sick is funny because, it's not funny. I take that back. Three-year-old sick for Cohen was funny because he, like, didn't want to admit that he was sick. Like, it wasn't just the fever. It wasn't just the coughing. But you could tell he was sick because he just didn't move. And for a three-year-old, that's like, okay, you're not feeling good. Because he still wanted to play, and he would still have his toys, and he'd be, like, playing with them, but just laying on the couch, like, fighting dinosaurs. And you're like, hey, hey, buddy, are you doing okay? He's like, I feel great, Dad. I'm doing just fine, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you wanna, do you want to play with me? He's like, no, just keep the germs over there. But um, 
he was sick, and I, I got to go. Emily and I got to go to a wedding of a couple of our friends, and so my parents watched him on last Friday night. And when we left, he was doing a little bit better. He had had some medicine. He was, you know, he's a little brighter or whatever. But when he's sick and he sleeps, he sleeps. And so when we got home, he was passed out on the couch. Like he had just, exhaustion had taken him over and my parents couldn't even get him up to uh, the bedroom. He was just like fully laid out on the couch, just knocked out. And we were, you know, we were talking and stuff and he was, he was just gone. And so my parents left and then I picked him up to take him upstairs to his bed. And uh, he woke up a little bit while we were walking up the stairs and Emily was coming up the stairs behind me. And so he opened his eyes and he saw Emily and he said, oh, hi, mama. And he gave her a little kiss. And she was like, hey, are you feeling okay? And he's like, yeah. But he leaned, he leaned over my shoulder and gave her a, a hug on the steps, which was a little dangerous, but we made it happen. And so he kept going up the stairs because he needed to go get in bed. But then he was so tired and so disoriented that he couldn't really make what was happening. And I'm holding him in my arms when he leans back and he says, where's my dad at? Where's my dad? Where's my dad at? And I'm like, I'm right here, bud. Like, I have you in my hands, like, focus right here. I'm right here. But he didn't just ask the question once. He started to get upset, and he started to not understand what was happening. He's like, where's my dad? And he was asking him, where's my dad? I'm like, I'm right here. I'm holding you right now. We're going to your bedroom. And I'm, like, trying to get his attention and trying to orient him because he's just so sick and so tired that he can't see or understand what's happening in our lives. And that's, that struck me. Because it's not just possible, it is probable that we will get so sick and so tired in life that we completely miss what God is doing right in front of us. We'll get so worn down by the madness of the day that we'll miss our dad at work right in front of us. And he's carrying us through all the while. And we'll be so worn down that we're just sitting and we're saying, where is God in this? Where's my dad in this? Because I am exhausted. We'll just miss it because our fatigue in life will get to us. And so in this season of Advent, say yes to seeking God. Say yes to seeking God. Say yes to actually spending time in scripture and in prayer, even if you're busy. Start today or tomorrow, cultivating a quiet time, cultivating a time where you read scripture and you try to hear from God, even if you're busy. Actually, especially if you're busy, spend time with God. Say yes to seeking God. Say no to something else, because seeking God is the first and the most important thing. Matthew 7, 7 and 8 says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. God is good to fulfill his promise. God is good to meet you when you say yes to seeking him. And so we have to say yes to seeking him. In this season, I have two weird biblical stories that kind of always come up in my life that we're going to hit on today. 
And they have nothing, to, well, nothing to do, but they're like outside of the normal Advent stories. But one of my favorite stories in scripture is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a story of these three guys who said yes to God over and over and over again, in spite of a shifting culture, in spite of things changing in their midst. And I'm going to tell you sort of the, the paraphrased version. We're not going to walk, you know, verse by verse through the story, um, but I'm trying to do my best to tell the story. And I'm also going to be very careful because I almost pushed this off the stage last hour. So you guys be careful, okay? Just be ready. Keep your head on a swivel. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are three guys living in a time when King Nebuchadnezzar had taken over the kingdom, and they had to uh, make some choices, Because King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to push God out and make himself the God of that time. And so uh, they had to say yes to changing their diet and proving that trusting God was more important than trusting what the people said in that time. And then in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar makes the ultimate move and he he builds this statue. This huge statue, 90 feet tall, all of gold, of himself. Talk about having an ego problem. Like, you know what this country needs? Big statue of me. That's going to turn things around. Go Nebuchadnezzar. Awesome. And so he builds this statue, and he makes a law that says whenever music plays of any instrument, and there's this whole long list of instruments that, they, that the herald says over and over and over again. It's like whenever any of these play, you guys have to bend down and worship the statue of me. And so Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach and Abednego have a choice to make. Are they going to say yes to Nebuchadnezzar and still live and still hold their position because they had risen up in the ranks a little bit in that time? Are they going to say yes to Nebuchadnezzar and hold on to living and still having their jobs? Or are they going to say no to Nebuchadnezzar so that they can say yes to God, a God who said, you will have no other gods before me? And they say yes to God. And the music plays after the statue is built and everybody in the kingdom bows down and is worshiping this statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And imagine how awkward it was when only three guys in the whole kingdom were standing up, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If I asked any one of you in the room here today, hey, just, you know, stand up for the rest of service. You're not going to die afterwards. You're not going to get fired. Just stand up. You'd be like, I'm good. I'll pass, because that would be awkward. Being the only one standing in a room where everyone's sitting is awkward. Trust me. Get it? Anyway, that was a bad joke. I apologize. That was, man, missed it. Anyway, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are standing up, and the whole kingdom is bowed down, and Nebuchadnezzar's like, what's going on over there? Who are these hooligans? Obviously a paraphrased version. Hooligans, not in the Bible. And so he gets his guards to go bring them in front of him. Because he wants to sort out what's happening. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, after staying standing when everybody else in the kingdom has kneeled down, he brings them up in front of him. He's like, listen, didn't you know about this law? And he repeats the whole list of instruments. And he's like, did you not know about the statue and the music and that you're supposed to bend down and you're supposed to worship me in this moment? Didn't you know about that? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are like, oh, no, yeah, we knew. Totally knew. We got the message, open that email, whatever, like we got the memo, we're good, but we're not going to do that. And he's like, if you don't do that, you will die. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we're not going to do that. We're not going to worship this idol that you set up because 
We believe that our God will save us. We believe that to be true. This God that we're saying yes to, this God that we're seeking day in and day out, this God that we're trusting every day, we trust him with our lives completely. We put all that we are in on him. We trust that God can save us. We trust that God will save us. But even if he doesn't, we won't bow before your, your throne, which takes some courage because they're standing in front of a king. They're standing in front of the man who has the power to end their lives immediately. And they're saying, yeah, we know somebody more powerful than you who will save us. But we would rather you kill us than say no to our God. We would rather you kill us than defy the one who can and will save us. And so Nebuchadnezzar has a change of heart. He's so overwhelmed by their testimony that he's like, cool, I'll worship God too now. No, that defiance completely turns Nebuchadnezzar off. He goes crazy and he's, he orders his people to turn up the furnace four times hotter than it's ever been before. And he's like, throw these guys in the furnace. They're going to die and they're going to burn up and we're never going to see anything from these uh, rebels again. And so he does and they do. And they walk Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all the way down to a furnace. Talk about trusting God and saying yes to God no matter your circumstances as you're being walked toward a furnace. It's said, it's recorded in Daniel that the furnace was so hot that the guards' clothes were singed by the heat of the fire of the furnace that they're about to be thrown into, these guys. And so they're walking and they can feel the heat's been turned up. And they go in. And you got to be wondering what's going through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's mind because they have to be thinking like, okay, we've said yes, we've been faithful, surely God's just going to do something like teleportation, we're going to be you know, shot back up in the throne room and be like, what now, Nebuchadnezzar? And uh, we're, like something's going to happen, but they keep walking, they keep get, getting closer and closer to the furnace and the heat is hotter and hotter. And I don't know about you, but I would have probably thought, like, I'm going to, I think maybe I should change my mind. Like, this is a hot fire, and they get thrown in. And that's where we pick up in Daniel chapter 3. Because th these men are thrown into the fire because they refuse to say no to God. They said yes to God. In chapter 3, verses 24 through 26, say this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement. Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, your majesty. And now pause right there, because you got to be a little concerned about Nebuchadnezzar's mental health. If he's so casual about throwing people into the fire, he can't remember if it was three or four. But he says, weren't there just three guys that we threw in? And they say, yeah, yeah, three. And he says, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the highest God, come out of here. Get out and come out of here. God was in the fire with them. They had to step into the fire to see where God would show up and be at work. They had to step into the furnace for God to show up. They just kept trusting and kept saying yes to God step after step, and then God showed up. And probably the way no one in the room or in the kingdom expected. 
I'm going to be in there with you. I'm going to be in the fire with you. That four times as hot as it's ever been furnace, I'm going to be in there and we're going to dance around in there because I'm not afraid of fire and you trust me. And so you shouldn't be afraid of fire. Say yes to me. And this is when Nebuchadnezzar did have a change of heart because in verse 29, it says this, no other God can save in this way. God defies logic and he comes into any hopeless situation and he brings salvation. He brings a salvation that only he can bring. And he stands with us in the fire. Now, it's not clear whether or not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego felt the heat from the fire. I'd imagine that they did. But what is clear is that they came out completely unscathed. It's said that their, their clothes didn't even smell like fire anymore, and which is a miracle in and of itself. Because if you've ever sat around a campfire, you know that that smell sticks in your clothes for like two or three years. You know? And so they come out of a furnace, and they don't even smell like fire. Nothing is destroyed on them. We have a God. We have a God who will save us, who is faithful. But he's working as we're waiting. And we don't get to dictate to him how he will save us or how he will show up in our lives. We just have to trust that he will when the time is right. We just have to say yes to seeking him even when we're doubting, even when it's unclear what's happening in our lives, and even when there's a fire burning right in front of our faces. We just have to keep saying yes to God. We say yes to seeking God because he will confound our expectations. We say yes to seeking God because he will confound our expectations. I am not suggesting, and I'm not saying that you're probably going to go to work tomorrow and you're going to face a king who you have to say no to in order to say yes to God so that you can keep your lives. And if you don't say yes to the king in your life, then you're going to be thrown into a fire. I'm not saying that. Probably not. If that's your tomorrow, talk to me. Let's change something about your tomorrow because that's not right. But I am saying in order to say yes to God, in order to see him at work, you might have to say no to an extra 30 minutes of sleep, which for some of us in here might be a fate worse than death. But I guarantee, I guarantee that God shows up and he honors that investment. I guarantee that he will be there when we seek him and he will confound our expectations. I wish I wish that God worked according to my schedule. I wish that I could put God squarely in my box of my theological understanding of who he is and how he works. I wish that he always operated according to my understanding. But the thing that I most often have to reconcile about my faith is that though I can be sure that God will deliver on his promises, he will not operate according to my certainty of circumstance. I am sure that he's good to deliver on his promises. I am not sure how he will deliver on his promises. Something I know, but I don't like, is that God works outside of my perception of what he's doing. I wish that I could see more clearly. I pray that I could see more clearly. I wish that I had a larger scale view of the plan of God. But he knows better than me what he's doing, and he knows better than me what to do next. Let me say that again, maybe just for myself. But he knows better than me what he's doing, and he knows better than me what to do next. And so this whole story of Christmas, if nothing else, should remind us that God is not beholden to man's certainty or expectation. 
He meets us where we are, yes, but always to open our eyes to a deeper understanding of who he is and how he operates and the life that he has for us and what it even means to be human. He opens our eyes. He doesn't confirm our assumptions. He is working on a bigger plane. His word is said to be living and active, and it always opens us up to more. Some thought that the Messiah would be a military powerhouse that would come in with fury and might and destroy kingdoms of the day. Some thought that the Messiah would be a king who would lead a political revolution, who would finally establish an order for the people of God. But a baby was born outside of town, and that was the Messiah. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit in the season here. Suffice it to say that God is working. He is operating in full, crystal clear HD resolution. And we get to see but a single flickering pixel of his promise being delivered. And so now we walk into that second story that I always hold on to in the season of Advent. It's the story of the Israelites fleeing Egypt. Consider this. The Israelites had been enslaved for generations generations by the Egyptians when Moses shows up on behalf of God and he sets them free. He does crazy things and he proclaims freedom for the Israelites and they get to walk out of Egypt. They get to walk out and they start walking and walking. They're following Moses and they had to feel at least somewhat good about trusting Moses and they're following him and they're walking and then they hear that the Egyptian army is chasing them down from behind, and it's at about that time that they walk up on a sea, an ocean, an impassable body of water. And that's when the Israelites start to get a little frustrated because it's like, we're being chased down from our backs with people who want to kill us because we just left. And in front of us, men, women, and children, all of us is an ocean, too big to swim across, what are we going to do? And so in Exodus 14, it says this, 14, 10 through 12, it says this, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and they cried out to God. They said, Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? This is no time for sarcasm, but that's where they went. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now the Israelites have just seen God do 10 miraculous things on their behalf to establish their freedom. 10, 10 things that set them free. And now they're standing in front of an ocean and because there's terror behind them and certain death in front of them, they start to doubt the God who set them free. And I don't want to be too hard on them because I, I do think it's a little bit fair. If you're just analyzing the situation, you're like, well, you done messed up, Moses. You brought us out of Egypt and now they're chasing us. You could have seen that coming. And we're following you and you walk us right up to a body of water. Why don't you go take that staff and do something crazy with that staff? Because we're standing here and we can't swim that well. These Egyptians are going to catch up to us. But Moses' response is great. Moses answered the people and their complaints. And he just said, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. 
The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. This is why community is so important. Because sometimes all we see is our circumstance and we need a Moses in our lives to say, don't be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Do not be afraid. I know what's happening. I see it too. I see the Egyptians coming. I see the ocean in front of us. Don't be afraid. God will fight for us. And what happens next doesn't surprise us in church enough anymore. Because then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through on dry ground. Why are you crying out to me? Do you think that an ocean is too big for me to part? Do you think that this obstacle is too big for me to remove? Walk forward. And you're going to walk through on dry ground if you just keep trusting me. And so Moses raises his staff in the ocean. The sea splits in half. And the ground dries up. And this herd of Israelites can walk through on dry ground. Not sort of dry ground. Not mushy ground. Not like it just rained ground and you're making footprints. Like dry ground so they can walk through quickly. And Moses is believing all along. These Egyptians, you're not going to see them ever again. You're going to get through this obstacle, and the problem that is chasing you down from behind will not, be, will not catch up to you because of the problem that you're standing in front of. God will fight for you. You need only to be still. And so remember that in this season that gets so frantic and gets so busy and our calendars get so full. You need to be still because the Lord will fight for you. You need to be still so that you can know when to take that next step forward. Because all we see sometimes are fires in front of us or bodies of water that seem too big for us to pass, obstacles that seem too great for us to conquer. And God's like, yeah, but it's not bigger than me. Move forward. Get in tune with what I'm doing. Say yes. Say yes to seeking God. Say yes to being still with him. Because in that stillness, in that rhythm, that's counterintuitive to the pace of life, you'll begin to get in tune with a God who will fight for you. Say yes to seeking God because he will surprise you and bring you joy. He will surprise you with his deliverance because we're rarely surprised by the confirmation of our certainty or assumptions. We are surprised by the confounding of our expectations. And so yes, say yes to seeking God because he's playing chess while we're struggling with checkers. So say yes to seeking God because he will give you peace. Let's remind ourselves as we close this morning who Jesus is. Because ultimately we should say yes to seeking him because he is the source of life. We've, we find ourselves, when we find ourselves at the end of our ropes, there's nowhere else to turn. And so we need to start saying yes to Jesus earlier. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says this about Jesus. It says, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in, in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, Jesus, is before all things. And in him, Jesus, all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So let's do this together. This week, today, if you already have a daily routine, continue doing it. Continue doubling down on that commitment you've made to a quiet time. If you don't have anything, if you don't have a quiet time, take a next step right now to establishing a quiet time. You can say yes to getting the Advent devotionals that are written by people in our community, all to remind ourselves of the reason for this time of year anyway, and it's to have expectation and hope for who Jesus is. When our lives are crazy, we can have expectation and hope for the peace that he will deliver, the hope that he will be And so you can sign up. There's a link in the Bible app right now. You can email. You can get out your phone right now and email office at exploremcc.org and just say, sign me up, and you will get a devotional every day this week. You can have a quiet time delivered to your email. Read the scripture. Go through the meditation. Do the prayer and spend time thinking about and remembering and praying about what God says about this time of year and what God says about life. Start this week. Start right now. Say yes right now because when you get out of here, it's going to get harder and harder to say yes. More things are going to get in your way in order and make it easier for you to say no, so say yes right now. He, Jesus, holds all things together, even our broken and fallen apart lives. He, Jesus, will bring peace by the blood of his cross. He, Jesus, is the firstborn of all creation. He is preeminent in all things, and so he should be preeminent in our calendars. We have to say yes to seeking the one who created all things as we're struggling with how to live our lives. As we're overwhelmed and burned out and overscheduled, we need to seek the one who developed the rhythm of life in the first place and for whom we even have breath. We have breath so that we can give him praise. He has given us life by the blood of his cross. And so as we go into communion, just give up all the things that are too much for you because his sacrifice is sufficient for even that. And I don't even know what that is in your life, but his sacrifice is sufficient for even that. If we say yes to Jesus, we can have peace in any storm that comes in our life. And so we take the bread, which represents the broken body, and we take the juice, which represents the bloodshed, and we hold on to the one thing that we can be sure of when it comes to God. He is good to deliver on his promise. And it's not up to me He is good to deliver on his promise. And it's not up to me. But we get in tune with that when we say yes to seeking God. So I'm going to pray and then we'll take communion. And your next step, your next step might just be opening the Bible app and starting a plan today. Or sending an email, again, to office at exploremcc.org right now. I'm giving you permission. Send an email in church. Say yes to seeking God right now. 
because it won't get any easier than in this moment. Sometimes the hardest spiritual work that we have to do is just saying yes to God, and then the rest follows. For Zach, it was just saying yes to admitting his doubts, and then God showed up and pushed him towards community and pushed him towards a place where he didn't get answers right away, but he could ask questions in a safe way. So will you pray with me? God, we trust you. We wish, we wish that we could see more than one single pixel of the picture that you're painting. But God, we hold on to that. We know that you're working on a canvas, on a landscape much bigger than we can understand. And so give us the faith to trust you more. Continue to confound our expectations. Continue to surprise us. Continue to show us what life really is what it means to be alive and what it means to be human and what it means to have hope in you. And God, give us the courage to say yes to seeking you, no matter what else it means saying no to. Help us. Give us strength. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.